Hi, welcome back to Parenting Naked. This is Misty White. We have Danan Moore here, and Gretchen Levy's back. She missed our last one, so we're excited to have her hey, back. Hey. <laughs> um, so today we're going to be talking about genetics and why it's important and what we should be doing with counseling. I know my little short bleep of being introduced to genetics was like my freshman year in high school and my brain was so not developed or even wanting to know about genetics at that point. <laughs> so it was like, wah, 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 It's wah. complicated and scientific. Yeah, it's yeah. complicated and scientific. <laughs> and, you know, I remember being asked when I was pregnant, do you want this kind of genetic counseling? And I'm like, no. <laughs> Why would I want that? Um, so I'm excited about our topic today mm -hmm. around that. Yes, we're happy to have Erin here with us today, so we'll let her introduce herself. Would you mind telling us your name? Yeah, hi, I'm Erin. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and um, we got the chance to have your partner here for Daddy Boot Camp, which yeah. was a real treat. So. Yeah. Um, and how many pregnancies have you had? Three. Three. Okay. And how many children? I have two babes. Awesome. They're adorable. <laughs> and we're very lucky because we're neighbors, so we get to see them. Nice. How old are they? Um, I've got a two and a half year old and a one year old. Oh, wow. Aww. Your hands are full, and that's adorable. <laughs> They're so cute. Um, so, maybe to start off with, I know Misty uh, gave us a hint into what we're talking about today, which is genetics. Could you tell us about your profession and how you got started? Yeah. So, I'm a genetic counselor. Um, and it, uh, honestly, it was a, something that I just sort of fell into because I knew I wanted to be working with people, but um, for a variety of reasons, I didn't think that you know necessarily mental health counseling was going to be the right path for me. And I had really loved um, science, but um, didn't think I wanted to be a researcher and um, was sort of taking some time after college um, working a job that I loved but that clearly wasn't a career um, and my mom called me one day and she was like I have figured out what you're supposed to do um, and this tells you how long ago it was she was like on my AOL homepage oh. this thing <laughs> popped up about the top growing careers and I think it's perfect for you and so I was like okay I'll look into it and I did and I was like you're right that is perfect for me. So. Wow, awesome. Yeah. We have a documented story of a mom being right. Uh, yeah. All of our yes, exactly. <laughs> it does happen. <laughs> yeah, so it's a beautiful um, mashup of, you know, I had never considered the field of medicine because I do not do blood and guts well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, you know, I get to work in medicine without ever actually having to deal with any of that kind of stuff. Um, and so I get to work with people um, and in a way that I really love. Awesome. Yeah. Um, how long have you been doing that? Um, almost, almost a decade at this point. Since AOL. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so what are the most common issues that you counsel people for? Yeah, so me specifically, I work in the realm of hereditary cancer. And so I'm working um, with adults who have... Um, um, because of muta uh, gene mutations running through their family, a greatly increased risk for cancers of one type or another. Mm -hmm. So um, Angelina Jolie sort of made us famous um, several years ago, my specific branch of this. Um, you know, she has, um, her mother died of ovarian cancer. She found out she had a, a gene mutation that put her at a greatly increased risk for breast and ovarian cancer. And so she sort of came forward with this and talked about the steps that she had taken to help um, prevent this for her, for herself. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's the world that I'm usually working in. 
Um, but genetic counselors kind of work across the lifespan. Um, most people who come in touch with a genetic counselor do so during pregnancy. Um, you know, that's when most people are familiar with us. But then, of course, we also work in the pediatric world as well with kiddos with special needs of a variety of types. Okay, great. How does one go about doing genetic testing? Great question. Um, and so, so in, in my world, um, sometimes it's doctors. You know, you go to your annual gynecolo- um, gynecologic visit, and your doctor says, you know, has you fill out a form about your family history or asks you, you know, has anyone on your family ever had breast cancer? And, of course, cancer is incredibly common, and the vast majority of it is not hereditary. Um, but it's only when we're seeing um, a pattern of the same type of cancer over and over again in the family or we're seeing people diagnosed at really young ages that we start to get concerned about one of these syndromes. Um, so, but sometimes, and so oftentimes it's a doctor. Sometimes it's patients just being proactive mm-hmm. um, and saying, you know, I see this pattern in my own family and I'm going to ask for this. Um, but for most women who come across um, genetic testing, it happens in pregnancy. You know, um, you go to your doctor for your 12-week visit. They draw a ton of labs. Um, sometimes doctors are good at explaining that some of what they're doing is genetic, and sometimes it just gets sent off with all the rest of the testing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that happens so much. I feel like, we, and they'll say, do you have any questions? And you're like, I don't know. Like, what, what questions am I supposed to be asking? Well, what answers do you have yeah. for me? Yeah. <laughs> and what's yeah. the layperson's understanding of what's a genetic? Yeah. You like, you know, like, I don't even know, besides downs or maybe like is that even genetic yes yep. it is okay. right. uh, <laughs> like, I don't even... is genetic but not usually um hereditary okay. so it's not usually passed through oh, yeah. and you're, you're gonna have to break <laughs> that down it's yeah. genetic but not hereditary because for me I, my brain is there and, yeah, yeah it's yeah, like yeah yeah um, so, so what I mean when I say hereditary is something that's being like passed through a family through multiple generations. Okay. So um, Down syndrome happens when you have an extra 21st chromosome. Um, the typical person has 46. Some people have 45. Some people have 47. But most people have 46. Um, and so Down syndrome happens when you get an extra 21st chromosome. Um, but that is usually a sporadic mistake in the egg. Um, it's not something that's being always passed. the egg. Always the egg. Oh, yeah. So mama would carry or something. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know women don't carry it because yeah. again it's just a sporadic mutation in this mm-hmm. one egg. There are some exceptions. Um, there are a small number of families where it can be um, sort of passed through families. The, an increased risk for it can be passed through families because sometimes um, a person's two of their two twenty-first chromosomes. We're all supposed to have two. They get stuck together. And so when that happens, then obviously you have a greatly increased risk of passing on an extra when your two are already stuck together. How would you know that? You wouldn't um, unless... So if a child is born with Down syndrome, that's sort of always a standard test that's been run to learn. um, Like, is this, you know, does this... Which way it occurred. Exactly. Okay. Was this sporadic or does this family have an increased chance for this to happen again? I see. To take this one step further, Mm -hmm. if an adult with Down syndrome had... A child, mm-hmm. are those risks greater? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, so um, adults with Down syndrome have reduced fertility, mm-hmm. um, and so they're less likely to be able to have children. But if they sure. do have children, then yes, there's um, a fifty percent chance for for a kid with Down syndrome. Right, that okay. Time. Good. 
fascinating stuff. It is fascinating. <laughs> um, so you had your own personal experience with genetics and its yes. role in your family planning. Yes. Would you mind telling us a little bit about it? Yeah. So it's sort of a kind of a winding trail and mm -hmm. um, really serendipitous that we um, even learned this at all ahead of time, and it's only because of what I do for a living. Um, and so I, you know, I work in the cancer realm, and so this is where this sort of journey started for us. Um, because I have what we call an uninformative paternal family history. My dad... Uninformative paternal family history. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> my dad only has brothers. His dad only has brothers. Even my grandmother only has brothers. Oh, so there's wow. lots of dudes on that side yeah. of the family. Wow. And no women. Um, even, even my grandfather's brothers only had sons. Oh my gosh. Um, so like literally it was m me and my 90-year-old grandmother on my, as far as women goes, on my side of the, on my dad's side of the family. Um, wow. Like I have some female. Is that genetic? <laughs> like that like, is just chance. That wow. is just chance. I know. It's crazy. Yeah. So I have some female cousins, but they were adopted. So I don't have like any female biological relatives on my dad's side of the family. Uh -huh. And so um, uninformative paternal family history in that if there were an increased risk for breast cancer, um, I wouldn't have had anyone to tell me about it, to warn me about it. Um, and so occasionally in my practice, I would see patients come in and they would say, you know, I don't have any family history. How can this be? And then we would go digging through the family and we would learn that this had been inherited from dad's side of the family and there just weren't women to have warned us about it. Um, so this isn't a common thing, but it happens now and then. And of course, doing what I do and knowing that I had this paternal, uninformative paternal family history, eventually I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to do testing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, were you like just? I'm just gonna go down the hallway <laughs> and ask John if he'll take a sample. Like, no. <laughs> so I actually, I actually had to go through um, what we call a direct to consumer test. Okay. Um, which, in general, we um, don't typically recommend. There are um, the, are those like the things you hear about, like. People are finding out they have relatives through and oh, stuff like that. Yep, yep, Is that yep. what those are? Yes. Okay. okay. So you can do these for ancestry. You can do these for um, a variety of traits. Um, you know, uh -huh. are you um, more likely to have straight or curly hair? You know, whatever. They have them out there now for like what sports you're supposed to be good at. Um, wow. So these things I mostly say, for the most part, these are for entertainment and not for... Um, medical yeah. utility, yeah. right? Okay. Um, and I think some of them try to make you think that maybe they're a little bit more useful than they actually are. So tread carefully. Um, but there are some that are there um, that actually are, you know, for hereditary cancer. Mm. Um, because I have this uninformative paternal family history, insurance was not going to pay for this for me. Um, you know, this isn't something that's just recommended for everybody. This is um, a test where we have a very specific history that we're looking for to say this is clinically indicated for you. And um, just not having women doesn't count. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so um, it was something where I had to, you know, I couldn't get a doctor's order for it, I couldn't get my insurance to pay for it, I just sort of had, if, if I wanted it, I had to do it myself, and so I just mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I ordered this testing online, <laughs> um, and it turns out that I actually do have a genetic mutation that puts me at an increased risk for ovarian cancer. Um, yeah, so um, so that's sort of where this got started. So essentially what that means for me is that at some point in my 40s, I have to have my ovaries taken out because, um, you know, 
when it comes to breast cancer, our screening is outstanding and our treatment is outstanding. Mm-hmm. And um, when it comes to ovarian cancer, our screening is lousy. And mm-hmm. so we don't have good screening. And so right. that's we have the strong recommendation we make to women in my shoes. Mm-hmm. So that'll be something that I'll have to um, decide when the right time is sometime in my 40s. Okay. Can so I ask you a question about, sorry. No, did you, you want to answer? Yeah. I, <laughs> I wanted to know, do you know which percentage of increase you have? Yeah. When you, when you find something like that out. Yeah. Um, so absolutely. We can tell, you know, different gene mutations carry different levels of risk. Um, and mine is in the range of like nine to 10%. Okay. Um, so it's not an overwhelming risk, but the average woman's risk is less than 2%. Thankfully, oh. ovarian cancer is very rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only because, um, we just, we don't have good screening. We catch it late. Ovarian cancer is very deadly. Yeah. And so that's why even with this, you know, not overwhelming risk, but still significantly increased, it still makes sense to go ahead and take those steps. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's great for everybody to hear. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A so, little alarming for me. <laughs> well, yeah, because we share a grandmother who died of ovarian cancer. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, man, maybe we need to get to get tested. <laughs> so having a grandmother with ovarian cancer actually is an indication for mm-hmm. the test. So. Oh, well, there we go. And we'll yeah. do a podcast after you guys have done it. That's right. So <laughs> let, let's back up a little bit. How do, is it blood work? Yes. Is it like a swab? Oh, okay. Like, so can, most it uh, can either be a blood draw or um, a spit. Okay, so since mine was through the mail, it was spit, you know, because okay. I didn't have a, a doctor there to draw the blood. Okay. Um, most people who get it done through their doctor, they'll just draw, it's just one tube of blood. It's amazing the information we get from one tiny little tube. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. But sometimes, you know, you still can do spit mm-hmm. at the doctor if, um, you know, you really, really hate blood draws mm-hmm. um, or what have you. Yeah. I've learned a lot from Aaron. So, like, <laughs> I found out my dad's side of the family, ton, everybody that's a male has had prostate cancer including my yeah. father. And so one day she and I were chatting and I was like, yeah, I mean, the only thing in my family is this thing and, you know, it's men. And she was like, that impacts you. <laughs> I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> like, because I just never thought, I, you know, you think mm-hmm. I don't have a prostate, so <laughs> how could right. it, yeah. I be at greater risk for, you know, but that type, I'll let her explain well, we know that certain genes can increase the risk for more than one type of cancer. So mine is just related to ovarian cancer. That's the only thing impacted. But genes can tie together prostate with breast and ovarian. And so, um, you know, again, prostate cancer is super common. It's the most common cancer that men get. Um, seeing a lot of prostate cancer in and of itself isn't concerning. But when we see aggressive prostate cancers, mm-hmm. so if um, somebody has a prostate cancer that spreads to other parts of the body, things like that, that's when we start to say, hmm, um, this is sort of outside the range of what we would expect and maybe there's something else going on. Wow. So sorry, we kind of got you off That's the okay. course of your story, <laughs> Yeah. but so interesting. So thank yeah. you for those little diversions. Um, yeah. so, so where were we? Yeah, so, so I learned that I have this gene mutation um, that puts me at an increased risk for ovarian cancer. Um, and if a child is born with two mutations in this gene. So my gene mutation is in a gene called RAD51C. And um, so I still have one working copy and that's, um, you know, all you need mostly to be healthy. Although of course I have this increased risk, but if both copies of RAD51C are broken, then it causes a disease called Fanconi anemia, um, which- Vanconi. Vanconi, Vanconi, it's named after a doctor. Okay. Vanconi anemia. 
okay. um, which has a very wide variable presentation, but can cause very severe childhood disease. Um, essentially, what is a, essentially a guarantee with this disease is what we call bone marrow failure. Um, so your bone marrow stops producing red blood cells, um, which obviously is And that's lethal. a guarantee with it? Yes, mm-hmm. that will happen at some point. Now, when that happens is, is hugely variable. Sometimes it happens very early in childhood to two-year-olds. Sometimes it happens much, much later in life, you know, when somebody's in their 40s. Um, and there's just not really a way to predict when it will happen. It sort and, of lies in wait. Mm-hmm, it can. Okay. It can. Um, and then there can be lots and lots of other features that go along with it, but um, those sometimes show up, sometimes don't. Um, so um, there can be some some bone deformities. People can actually be missing their thumbs is a random sort of association that goes along with it. That's how um, some, a lot of times it gets diagnosed, a child's born without thumbs, and then they get this thing from the Amelia workup. Um, it can puts kids at an increased risk for blood cancers, so a um, greatly increased risk for leukemia. Um, there can be sort of a whole sequela of things. It's also an increased risk for solid tumors as well. Um, but it, um, you sort of don't know how severe this is going to, there's not really a way to know how severe this is going to be, and it can be very severe. And the only cure for it is a bone marrow transplant. Um, and that takes care of the bone marrow failure, obviously, but can't necessarily cure all of the associated problems with it. And of course, a bone marrow transplant in and of itself is not benign. <laughs> Um, that's a really big deal, and, and, a, yeah. and um, there's no guarantee that you will survive that. Yeah. Um, there's no guarantee that you'll find a successful match. There's no guarantee that you'll survive it if you do, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, knowing that I had this RAD51C mutation, my husband's grandmother died from ovarian cancer. And so I had said, oh, you know, before we get, before we get pregnant, we need to make sure you don't have a RAD51C mutation. There's no chance that you do because this is so, so rare, mm-hmm. but we just need to check. Yeah. And he does. <laughs> Oh wow! And so this Thank was goodness, like right? I know. So this was like a one in four million chance. That's what brought you together. I... We're attracted to each other because you shared that yeah. commonality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One yeah. I know exactly. <laughs> a, a one in four million chance that we wow. would both have this issue. And a, a friend of mine did say she was like, "Wow, that's really terrible, but also kind of romantic." <laughs> I was like, <laughs> in a morbid kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, you know, this, the genetic testing that happens for a lot of women in pregnancy is carrier screening. So that's um, along this line. So, so Franconi anemia is an autosomal recessive disease. There are lots of different genes that can cause it. Ours is actually sort of the most rare type, but there are more common um, genes that can cause it. Um, and so typically what we do is when a woman is 12 weeks pregnant, she goes to her OB along with all this other blood work, she gets her carrier screening. And so they are testing to see, are you a carrier of um, some of these common autosomal recessive diseases? Ours is a more rare one, but cystic fibrosis is much more common. Sickle cell anemia is another example. Um, and we used to sort of test people um, based on their ethnicity. Um, and that's still happening a little bit. So, for example, um, individuals of Jewish ethnicity have a much greater risk for being carriers of Franconia anemia, as well as um, for Tay-Sachs um, and a few other diseases. 
Um, and at this point in time, though, genetic testing has changed so that it's become much more affordable, much faster, et cetera. And sort of just everybody gets every panel at this point in time is usually the typical and so practice. This is one that the doctors do automatically. This is not the one that they say, would you like to do some genetic You know, um, I think it's usually happening pretty automatically okay. without... Um, a lot of explanation to me. Yeah. Okay, it's just like we're running a series of tests. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's okay. often happening pretty automatically. And I'd say when I had my kids at, you know, 18 and 16 years ago, they probably weren't running those panels. Mm-hmm. I think I had the choice of finding out whether or not the baby had Downs. Mm-hmm. That was probably yeah. about it. I think mm-hmm. I can't recall any other questions come up about, do you want to know yeah. <laughs> about yeah. the baby's genetics? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's usually happening pretty automatically. I don't think, I think um, people do a little bit of a better job asking if um, parents want to know about Down syndrome risk, Mm -hmm. but I think even that is often happening pretty automatically. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, you know, this is a test that um, is happening at 12 weeks, and um, the truth is, Almost everybody is a carrier of something, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Um, and these things have no effect on our own health most of the time. There would be no reason for you to know about it, um, and it re- only is consequential when just the right two people get together. Mm-hmm. Um, which, thankfully, is um, the exception rather than the rule. This um, doesn't happen very often, mm-hmm. but it's awful as a woman who you know you're. Um, you get the test at 12 weeks, you get your results from your doctor around 14 weeks, you've just announced your pregnancy to everybody, oh, and then your doctor calls and says, by the way, you're a carrier of cystic fibrosis, we need to get your husband tested. Um, and, you know, they don't have a ton of information, and mm-hmm. it's so scary to yeah. learn this at this point in time. And chances are, um, far greater than not, that the partner is not also a carrier, and that this doesn't matter at all. But what terrible timing to learn this, you know. And then you're yeah. faced with, like, do I terminate a pregnancy exactly. based on mm-hmm. percentage of probability, like, you, you know, like. Well, so at that point in time, we can do further tests, right? Okay. Like, um, so if both partners are a carrier of the same autosomal recessive disease, there's a one in four chance for each pregnancy to be affected. Three in four chance that it doesn't matter. Oh. And we can do um, additional testing to tell us whether or not the, the baby is affected. Um, But isn't it so much better to know this before you're pregnant so that you can say, you know, in the planning stages of pregnancy, oh, I'm a carrier of cystic fibrosis. We need to get my partner tested as well so that if we're both carriers, then we can make a game plan instead of learning that we're both carriers at 14 weeks and, like you said, be then faced um, with the idea of having to terminate a very wanted pregnancy. you know, and of course, there are lots. You know, a lot of people go through this and don't choose to terminate. There are plenty of options. Yeah. But isn't it so much better to be able to think through all of those options mm-hmm. ahead yeah. of time um, than being mm-hmm. faced with this devastating news and terrible choices, sort of in the thick of it, when it's supposed to be a joyous time? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a great point. So, would you recommend? both parties getting the genetic testing or just mom at 
first and then if she's flagged, then yeah. have your partner. So you, there's really only a need to test the partner if, if something comes up for mom. Okay. So, you know, for, for us, you know, my RAD51C testing was sort of a separate thing, but then when my husband and I were planning pregnancy, I said, oh, I'm going to go get my carrier screening. And I went to my midwife and I said, you know, we're planning to get pregnant. Can we go ahead and do my carrier screening? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know exactly why this isn't happening for the majority of women. Um, you know, most women themselves don't even know to ask this, no. but I think um, for doctors and midwives um, that it's so routine for them to be offering this at 12 weeks. That's just sort of their pattern and their habit. Um, it's what insurance pays for. And, but you know, mm-hmm. I think in some cases that's true, but I think more and more insurances are paying for it ahead of time as well. Oh, good. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, to be preventative and proactive uh-huh. to yeah. not have to deal with the potential mm-hmm. fallout. It's, yeah. I mean, this was many years ago, and so I, I, I don't remember exactly, but I think I ended up paying like $150 for a test. And so insurance did cover some of it, and we covered some of it, mm-hmm. um, you know, even though I wasn't yet pregnant. But I think that's exactly the other point, is that a lot of doctors say, oh, no, no, you don't want it yet, insurance won't pay for it. But that's not always true. I think a lot of times the insurance will pay for it ahead of time. And I think, um, to be honest, that um, maybe... If, if, you know, obviously that's out of reach for many people, but for anyone who, for whom it's in reach, that's one of those things where it's worth it to say, I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, like a totally unrelated example, but I had a spot come back in my first mammogram, and mm-hmm. they only wanted to re-examine the left breast for some reason. And I was like, no, no, actually, I want you to look at both. Mm-hmm. And turns out that the thing I had biopsied was on my right breast. So, you know, just follow your intuition, advocate Mm -hmm. for yourself, um, Mm -hmm. because, and everything's fine, Fine. uh, yeah, yeah. but that was quite a situation, and insurance was like, well, we're not going to cover it, and I was like, that's okay, Yeah, you know, and I think the total cost was $300, and fortunately, I could do that, but, yeah, 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 so so we learned through my through my general carrier screen that I'm a carrier of galactosemia as well, and so then we just got my What's husband. That? Um, that is a metabolic disease where babies cannot um, process galactose, which is the sugar in breast milk. Oh, oh um, gosh. wow! And so they have to be put on a very specialized diet. Um, and so if we know this ahead of time, it's also on newborn screening. Um, okay. So we would know, you know, when a baby was born if there hadn't been any genetic testing in the parents ahead of time. Um, but then they, they just have to go on a very specialized diet. They have to be on a very, very special formula. You know, you can't, it's not formula you can buy off the shelf and they can't be breastfed. Um, but then they're um, essentially fine. Um, but if we don't know about it, then um, the galactose builds up and babies go into septic shock and they die. Oh. And it's very sad. It's very awful. Wow. But that's how, how common is that? Not super. Okay. But common enough that it's on newborn screen. Yeah. Because okay. Um, you know, it causes severe disease, and yeah. there's something we can do about it. There's mm-hmm. a, a, a mm-hmm. clear intervention that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, wow. that's pretty awesome. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, so we got my husband tested for those two things, you know, the RAD51C and the galactosemia, and I thought, no way he has this RAD51C, maybe he has galactosemia, because <laughs> that's a, an overall much more common. It's like one in 40 people or something okay. like that carry galactosemia, versus like one in 2,000 people carry RAD51C. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that's, that's how it fell out for us. But so in general, you know, I think you start, start with one partner, mm-hmm. typically the woman, um, mm-hmm. cause that is easier to get insurance coverage for a woman. Yeah. You know, you say mm-hmm. that this is for reproductive pers- per- 
purposes, etc. Um, and then only if there's something that you then need to chasten in the partner, mm-hmm. do you then have to proceed down that path. But, you know, because my husband and I knew this ahead of time, um, it was still, you know, awful to learn yeah. about this. And we had to sort of rethink everything we had planned. Um, but we got to do that um, while not also worry, worrying about a pregnancy at that point in time. Mm-hmm. We got to take our time and sort of talk through how we wanted to proceed and decide what we were going to do. Mm-hmm. So. Well, that's good. Um, so did you and your partner have decisions or like those, comp- what did you have to discuss? Yeah. Um, how we wanted to build a family, knowing what we knew, mm-hmm. um, what um, sort of risks we were willing to live with. Um, you know, so essentially, of course, doing what I do, this is something that I had thought about in a hypothetical sense a million mm-hmm. times before. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's one of the reasons I tell, I really, um, you know, and some people say I, I, I would not want to know that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want to take what comes. I wouldn't do anything differently, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and some people really adamantly believe that that's true. And if you genuinely feel that you would not do anything differently, no matter what, then it does make sense for you to get the testing. Yeah. But I always try to remind people that hypothetical is different than actuality. Mm-hmm. And that what you think you would do um, mm-hmm. is sometimes different. And so, for example, my husband and I, I had never um, really... Um, felt a strong, I, I knew I wanted to have a family, but whether that was a biological family or not had not ever been particularly important to me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I had always said to myself, oh, if I'm ever a carrier of anything, there's no way I'm putting myself through all of that. We'll just adopt babies. But it turns out it's not really actually very easy to just adopt babies. Yeah, it's <laughs> not easy and it's really expensive. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, yeah. that was sort of the path we started going down looking into this. And we realized, you know, we actually, this is actually really hard and we're really not prepared for this right now. Um, for the weight that it can be, mm-hmm. for the uncertainty. Mm-hmm. You know, we felt ready to have a family and um, we just didn't, we didn't feel prepared to go through all of that at that point in time to get there. Yeah. Um, and so then we sort of readdressed, you know, have, okay, so we, we are going to try biological children. Let's go through IVF. Okay. Um, because when you're both par- um, partners are a carrier of the same disease, um, you can go through IVF not for fertility purposes, but to then screen the embryos. Yeah. So they create these embryos, they do genetic testing on the embryos ahead of time, and then they are able to only select the ones that do not have the genetic disease to re-implant and create a pregnancy. Wow, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And so we thought that that's what we would do. Yeah. And so we started down that path and um, we went through all of the workups and, you know, when we first walked in, I think it was 32 when we started this. Um, you know, they were like, yes, you are young. This is going to work great. No problem. We did all my evaluations and they were like, oh, you are young, but your ovaries are old. 
Uh, <laughs> I hear that that's pretty common. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. your your um, reproductive age doesn't necessarily match your biological age yeah. all the time. And there mm-hmm. are 40-year-old women who um, still have lots of um, capability to have babies, and there are 30-year-old women who um, their ovaries have already sort of spent yeah. themselves, if you yeah. will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my mom had gone through menopause really early in life, and I just hadn't ever really thought anything much mm-hmm. of it. Um, but then we went in for this evaluation, and I thought, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so they said, you know, this will still work for you, but we just want to prepare you. You might be looking at multiple cycles of IVF before we're able to get enough eggs to have oh, wow. some, some healthy eggs. So you kind of just tripped into that. Yeah. Yeah, so you know, when I went in based on my biological age, they yeah. said, okay, we expect that we can get four to six healthy embryos, um, which is great, you know, because of course not every embryo is going to implant successfully, yeah. yada yada. So you kind of want a couple extra. Um, and then we went in um, after I had done sort of the full workup with the hormone testing and the ultrasounds and yada yada. They said, okay, it's actually a little bit of a different picture. We think maybe from your first cycle we'll be able to get one or two. Wow. Which also, when you're looking at numbers that small, that also very possibly means none. Yeah. And if you want more than one child, we're certainly looking at multiple cycles, but possibly looking at more than one cycle even for one child. So we sort of had to regroup. Um, yeah. You know, our um, insurance didn't provide any coverage for um, these types of treatments, so yeah. we were looking at all of this out of pocket. And so suddenly, again, we're looking at six figures mm-hmm. to get wow. a, a baby. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we had to regroup again and mm-hmm. say, you know, are we going to do this? Um, you know, how do we go about this? And at that point in time, we decided, you know, like we've never even tried to get pregnant. Maybe it's going to be easy for us. Maybe we'll get lucky. And, um, you know, this is uh, such a different approach that my husband and I took to this. He was, my husband was like, you know, 75% chance for a healthy baby. The odds are in our favor. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying one in four million chance that we were in this boat in the first place. Yeah. And here we are. Mm-hmm. So one in four odds sounds to me like a guarantee. Yeah. <laughs> Which of course it's not, right? Yeah. Of course it's not. Yeah. But, um, you know, it was, it was very, I was very scared to yeah. take that leap. So, um, but eventually, you know, we decided that we should at least try and get pregnant mm-hmm. and see if, if this happens easily for us and go from there. Yeah. And we were very lucky and it did happen very easily for us. You know, we conceived my first son on the, the, our first try. Nice. Um, you so, just saved six figures. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So then what we had to go through, because we had had a lot of talks about it and we had decided that we were not prepared um, to have a child with fetal anemia. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't... A viable option for us um, that we you know it's just it's one of those things where if you can say like in the end this will be okay yeah. we could have pictured ourselves sort of going through that mm-hmm. but um, you know knowing that there was a very strong chance that we were going to have this child mm-hmm. who was going to be very very sick yeah who was essentially going to live in the hospital and be yeah. in a lot of pain we have to look at the quality of life like is that mm-hmm. fair like what kind of quality life is this child going to have because we want to have a child yeah but yeah, yeah it's a very grown-up conversation mm-hmm. I, it was hard i'm impressed that you guys were 
talking about instead of just throwing caution into the wind. <laughs> so, so much better. Um, <laughs> so many cobbles yeah. can't get there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we, we had decided that, that we weren't prepared for that. And so, um, you know, as soon as I got pregnant, we scheduled um, what's called a CVS. So um, people are more familiar with an amniocentesis, mm-hmm. um, but these are very similar procedures. Um, an amniocentesis happens a little bit later in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And people are more familiar with that because um, it happens more commonly because amniocentesis um, is usually what's done if there's a concerning finding on an ultrasound or if initial blood work shows an increased risk for Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. So that initial blood work that women get, you know, just in the doctor's office Mm -hmm. um, is not giving a diagnosis of Down syndrome. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that too. It's giving a likelihood of Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. And then if you want Mm -hmm. to confirm um, you have to do an amniocentesis. That is the only confirmatory testing okay. to get an actual diagnosis. Right. Okay. Um, so that's important to know. That's an aside, but that's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, but you can do a CVS a little bit earlier in pregnancy if you're going into the pregnancy already knowing that there's a potential concern. Um, and so you can get that procedure done at 10 weeks. Essentially, they use a needle and they take a little biopsy of the placenta because it's actually the baby that grows the placenta, not the mom. What? Yeah. Oh my God, we're learning we so much. Biology <laughs> education <laughs> today, too. Thank you. Yeah, so um, the placenta has the baby's DNA. And so then they can send that off for testing um, to see if, if the baby is affected or not. Mm-hmm. Um, Gosh, now, is, 10 there, weeks. Mm-hmm. Wow. is there a risk associated with There the is a risk. Because I yes. know there is with the amnio, too. Yes. Um, and so mm-hmm. CVS is a little bit of a higher risk um, just because it's earlier in pregnancy, um, because mm-hmm. you're taking a little tiny biopsy of the placenta as opposed to just some of the fluid that surrounds the baby. Um, so it's the same, you know, there's a risk for miscarriage. Um, it's a low risk. Um, I don't know what numbers are being quoted these days. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of a constantly evolving number as we get better and better at things. And it also, frankly, um, varies based on center and provider. But um, I would say in the range of 1 in 100 to 1 in 250, something okay. like that, oh, okay. um, of a risk for a miscarriage from a CBS. So, okay. yeah. so yeah, there is a risk associated with it. Um, I've also heard some people say that there is a possibility for causing limb defects from Mm. CVS um, that happened in the past when they were done too early. But we have now learned that they, you know, 10 weeks is the earliest that they can be done. Providers won't perform them earlier anymore. And if they're not done too early, that is not a risk associated. So that's also the misinformation Mm -hmm. to correct that that's not, that doesn't happen. After 10 weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, so we scheduled our CVS. We went in and got our CVS um, at 10 weeks. And, um, you know, women talk about the two-week wait, mm-hmm. learning to, you know, between um, ovulation and that, and that positive pregnancy test and how hard that is. And let mm-hmm. me tell you, there is nothing <laughs> like mm-hmm. the two-week wait for a CVS. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that was, it was awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but... Um, we have a healthy baby. We Yay. got, we got um, you know, my oldest, that was, this was my oldest son. We got the call that everything was fine. Um, and so, so Yay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so with each of your pregnancies, did you do the CVS then? So um, we did with my first pregnancy. Okay. And then with my second pregnancy, I um, had one scheduled, but I had an early miscarriage um, before it happened. Mm, sorry. Um, that's okay. Thank you. Um, I think... Um, 
because we always like steal ourselves so much in early pregnancy um, that actually it, it um, was not that hard for me to deal with. Mm-hmm. I think it would have been harder if I hadn't already had a healthy baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but because I had my healthy child and because we were so guarded at this phase anyway. And, you know, like I'm a person of science um, mm-hmm. and I'm not, um, I feel silly saying this, but like I felt like something was wrong in that mm-hmm. pregnancy. I did too. From the beginning. With mine, with, I, totally. I was... I wasn't sure if I was pregnant and then I took the test and I was and then I didn't feel pregnant Mm -hmm. yeah it just didn't feel like I knew something was was off for it so it's interesting that you said that yeah I just felt Mm -hmm. like something was wrong and so I was very anxious because I was afraid we were like I just felt like I was going to get a bad test result this time but then when I ended up having my miscarriage at like six or seven weeks I was like oh okay Mm, okay Mm -hmm. yeah that's one thing we talk about on this podcast yes. is help normalize and, mm-hmm. and, and just bring it into our our culture and consciousness more. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's there, but we don't talk about it. Yeah, And, and it's just so, so it's something that we do explore mm-hmm. in this podcast to help women with that yeah. process. Well, and yeah. in this conversation, it's not about you or your body. This is nature. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And this was nature's way possibly mm-hmm. of saying yeah. it. Yeah. It wasn't a healthy mm-hmm. pregnancy. It wasn't going to be a healthy baby. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's just nice to hear that perspective because yeah. I think a lot yeah. of women do put that blame on themselves. Yeah. Just something yeah. Or, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. So that was my second pregnancy. So I, you know, we lost it earlier. And then my third pregnancy, yes, we had um, the um, CVS at 10 weeks and um, we learned at 12 weeks that he was also healthy. Oh, um, so two boys. So, yes, two boys. Um, and so the odds have been in our favor both times. We've been very lucky and very grateful for that. Um, but the second time around, the CVS actually did cause a complication, um, a crazy rare complication. Um, so um, the bag of waters is actually multiple membranes that kind of fuse together. And the CVS had caused the membranes to separate. Um, and to um, also kind of pull away from the uterine wall. We don't think of them as sort of being attached, but they are. Mm -hmm. And so um, my husband described it on the ultrasound as looking like the baby was in a tent with no tent poles. Like you could see the membrane kind of collapsing in Mm -hmm. on him. And so um, our MFM, maternal fetal medicine um, specialist, who is a, you know, a high-risk OB, who is the one who does these types of procedures and manages high-risk pregnancies, mm-hmm. um, had been practicing for over a decade. And he said, you know, I recognize this as a complication of CVS, but it's so rare that I've never actually seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially because the membranes had separated, um, they were very worried that they were going to tear early. And so we learned this when we did our 12-week ultrasound. Mm-hmm. Um, it was that early? It was that early. I remember yes. about this, but I don't think I knew about it till mm-hmm. you were much further into the pregnancy. Yeah, because um, we just sort of didn't talk about my mm-hmm. pregnancy then at that point in time because basically our, our doctor had said, you know, like, I'm not telling, I'm not going to tell you to end this pregnancy, but I am going to tell you I don't expect this pregnancy to go well. Oh, wow. um, oh, yeah, the level of stress. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. yeah. Oh. And so the baby was healthy. There wasn't a concern about that. It was just this constant worry that at any point in time my water would break. 
Oh, and oh, then geez. you have risk for, like, is the baby developed enough? Is mm-hmm. they going to develop an infection? How mm-hmm. quickly do we need to deliver? Can we deliver? Like, right, what? exactly. Yeah. Well, and so we had gone in, like, we had all of these to this whole time I mapped out with our MFM, and he was like, okay, you know, if you um, get, if your water breaks before this point in time, like, the baby's lungs will not have been able to develop. They need to be surrounded by that fluid for their lungs to develop. And so if your water breaks before this point in time, this is not going to be a viable baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we make it this far, then we, you know, it was like if the water breaks before 24 weeks, there's just, it's not, it's mm-hmm. not going to be a viable baby. But if your water breaks at 24 weeks or after, we do everything possible to keep you pregnant as long as possible. The baby can still keep developing at that point in time in utero, even without mm-hmm. the fluid. But you have to be um, in the hospital because mm-hmm. at that point, you're right, the mm-hmm. risk for infection is huge. So mm-hmm. I would have to like, live in the hospital <laughs> as long as I could stay pregnant um, up until 34 weeks. So that window of 24 to 34 weeks, they just try to keep you pregnant after 34 weeks. The risk of infection outweighs the risk of prematurity at that point, and so they would go ahead and deliver you. Mm-hmm. But the energy in this room just totally shifted. We're all like, "Oh my gosh, Eric!" Oh, well, I just yeah. saw six digits again, like yeah. six yes. figures pop up um, if right? we're going to yeah. be living in the hospital. Right, right. Mm-hmm. But that that one would be covered by insurance. Oh, okay, good point. <laughs> the end um, but so they, um, you know, he had us do a tour of the NICU and meet. Um, the neonatologist which is smart and, but also yeah. like you know honestly I was serious. so glad that we did do it because mm-hmm. it really it did help me feel better to like meet these people who would be who Your we team. assumed would be taking care of our baby mm-hmm. you know to yeah and I'm some I'm an information is good type of person like I like to sort mm-hmm. of have as much information as possible it helps me feel more prepared mm-hmm. sure. um, you know I know some people are sort of the opposite like I don't want to deal with it until I have to and that's yeah. reasonable too but that's not me yeah um so but in a way thank god you're that way yes because <laughs> you I mean you almost it has to be a person like you to be able to weather all of that right mm-hmm. like I want to know this and knowing this is going to make me feel better so many mm-hmm. people would be like ah, I don't want to yeah. know I don't want to face it I don't want to think about it yeah. you know but yeah there's a lot of strength in that. Yeah. Yes. Um, so we just had constant check-ins with our MFM, and you know we made it to 24 weeks, and he came in and he gave us high fives, and he was like, "This is great. You know, this is now a viable baby. Every like, we just want to, um, you know, get you as far along as possible." And sort of that, when you think about developmentally. Um, the hill between 24 weeks and 28 weeks is huge. It's this huge steep climb where tons of important development happens. And then once you get to 28 weeks, it's a much more gradual climb. Mm-hmm. So babies born between 24 and 28 weeks are, you know, they're viable, but they're super fragile. Yeah. You're worried about all kinds of neurological damage, and you're worried about, um, you know, blindness, um, mm-hmm. just a huge um, sequelae of complications. And then once you hit 28 weeks, that's still absolutely a very premature baby. Mm-hmm. But your level of concern, you know, really tapers off much more dramatically. And then you're just trying to um, get them to breathe on their own and get them to eat on their own and get them to grow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, at 28 weeks, we came in and he was like, I'm, you know, I'm so thrilled you're here. I was not expecting this, but I don't need to see you anymore. Like, go, go back to your regular OB and, you know, we're done. Oh, um, and then we made it to 38 weeks. After all of that, nice. we made it to 38 oh, wow. weeks. How did you sleep? I mean, it was, yeah, it was 
<laughs> or even like panic when maybe the baby felt like mm-hmm. it was pushing too hard or kicking, you yes. know, moving. Oh, I know, much. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like anytime, anytime um, our older babe would kick, you know, my husband would be so excited about it. And then anytime our little one would kick, he'd be like, no, stop, Aww. stay still. Don't move in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, because a lot yeah. of people were like, oh, you know, are you going to have to be on bed rest? And I was like, you know, they, it, it, the cons- it's not going to make a difference, mm-hmm. you know. The baby's movements are what is going to cause the most concern. You know, like I, I wasn't allowed to exercise. All I was allowed to do was walk. Um, but I wasn't put on, on bed rest mm-hmm. because he was saying it's not going to matter. Like yeah. Another. So we'll still be moving in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we made it. We made it all the way to 38 weeks after all of that. But yeah, I mean, we didn't um, share that we were pregnant, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, um, I was visibly pregnant and people got to the point where they were just asking (laughs) (laughs) before I had ever, you know, shared. Um, and so, because we just didn't know Mm kind of how to, how to talk about it. And then, you know, of course, like you can, um, you know, I felt comfortable for the most part, um, saying, oh, there's a complication, you know, I'm worried the water's going to break, etc. But my husband's a little bit, I, I don't feel like I'm a particularly private person, but he's like a super open book about this. And he's mm-hmm. like, oh, because we have this genetic thing and we had to get this test. And I was like, honey, you don't have to tell everybody. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> and, you know, and on the one hand, like, I um, sort of appreciate his crusade for normalizing this kind of thing. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, like, you don't know how everybody is going to accept that information and there is a lot of judgment about that kind of thing yeah and so it was hard to share with people who you don't sort of already um expect them to to Mm -hmm. be understanding and sympathetic and sort of on the same page as you about that kind of thing well and just a lot of ignorance around like and and like not ill-intended just like i remember when you told me and i was like i don't quite get it like, but that, I, I totally empathized with you and was like, oh my gosh, that's got to be so hard. But I don't think I got the gravity of it. Mm-hmm. And so I imagine that that probably feels like, why am I going to like bear all to people that don't even understand how big of a thing this is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I apologize that I or did not no, you were... <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I don't expect people to, um, you know, understand the gravity of it mm-hmm. just um you know you want people not to be judgy yeah, yeah. <laughs> is what it comes well, I think down it just, to again speaks to your strength and other mommies who are going through similar things where they're just kind of not suffering in silence but like nervous in silence and scared mm-hmm. in silence of like you want people to be around you but you don't want to get your hopes up you don't mm-hmm. want your you know it's like every day you just take it yeah. every one day at a time yeah. one day at a time and um, one of our hopes in doing this too is to kind of teach women and other people to not be so judgmental, right? Like we need each other. We need each other so much and to look at each other and go, gosh, she's kind of being quiet about her pregnancy and being judgmental versus just saying there's something going on and, and what can I do mm-hmm. to provide support, whether it's just rub you on the back and say whatever you need we're here, mm-hmm. right? But nah, yeah, we got to stop the judgment because... Mm-hmm. There's, there's risk in people saying something that could be hurtful or devastating or mm-hmm. ignorant to the point where you're like, oh my gosh, I, I can't even talk about it. So yeah. I am impressed with your strength mm-hmm. and your husband's strength. Uh, during the daddy boot camp one, he was so sweet when it came, when it came to talking to you about you and stuff. And yeah, it was sweet. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and your courage to just yeah. say 
let's try. Let's see yeah. what happens. Let's yeah. just give this a shot. That's mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, we sort of we sort of felt like we had to at that point in time if you know if we wanted um if we wanted a family which we really did and so it sort of felt like our last resort but you know it worked out (laughs) thankfully yeah that's great they are amazing um so what advice would you give people that are planning to conceive so i would really encourage anyone who is thinking about getting ready to get pregnant to go to their doctor and say planning pregnancy can we go ahead and do my carrier screening um see i, I don't even yeah. think i uh-huh. have ever even heard that language before carrier no. screening carrier i didn't screening. I, yes. like thank you audience this is gonna help this yeah i know how to speak the language yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. can i get my carrier screening yep and yep. when they're asking for that they're asking for what specifically yeah so um there are lots of different companies out there that offer this and there's different sized panels but pretty much you know most of these panels are fairly large at this point in time to test for a large variety of autosomal recessive diseases some that are pretty common in the world of um, genetic disease like cystic fibrosis and sma spinal muscular atrophy um and some that are much, much, much more rare that, you know, the chances of it being a concern are minuscule, but it happens to somebody and that's why it's on that panel. Um, but you just do a, you know, it's a simple blood draw um, and they send this test in and they um, check these, these genes that can cause autosomal recessive diseases. So having one good copy means you are healthy and you would have no reason to know that this was a problem. Um, because it takes just the right two people to get together for mm-hmm. it to be an issue. You know, I often hear people, I've heard multiple times, um, oh, I don't have any family history, so I don't need to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, these are things that you wouldn't have any family history mm-hmm. of because mm-hmm. it takes just the right two people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you do have a family history, then obviously your risk is increased, but everybody has a risk. So, for example, um, one in 25 white people carry cystic fibrosis and about one in 30 people carry spinal muscular atrophy wow yeah so they're they're pretty common yeah and that's why i say you know pretty much everyone is a carrier of something Mm -hmm. and luckily just most of the time the right two people don't get together um Mm -hmm. and so um so yes, that's okay. what you would, you would be tested for. Now let's say you're a woman who had a one night stand and that one night stand resulted in a child. You uh-huh. have no contact with the um, other genetics yeah. that are involved <laughs> yeah. there. What, what about that scenario? Well, so in that scenario, um, you know, you could, I would still encourage you to go through carrier screening. And if you learned you were a carrier of something, then you could learn what's the risk that this other person was also a carrier. Um, and, you know, I think you can either decide to sort of just live with that risk, which is certainly very reasonable to do, mm-hmm. um, and wait until the baby is born to do any testing. You know, you would also sort of educate yourself about the severity of the disease and decide mm-hmm. that could also influence your decision about waiting or going ahead. Mm-hmm. But if you didn't have access to the other half of the DNA, um, then you can always just go ahead and do that invasive testing. So that CVS or that um, amniocentesis to get that diagnosis if that mm-hmm. was something that was of concern. Yeah. Okay. Can we back up really quick? If you went into your doctor and said, I want this, this screening mm-hmm. test, are doctors likely to say you don't need that? 
So I think some doctors would say, oh, insurance won't pay for that until you're pregnant. Okay. Um, I think that might be sort of the only reason they might discourage it. Okay. Um, I think that might be some resistance that you would meet. But you're saying advocate for yourself, mm -hmm. get it done. Mm -hmm. I mean, my doctor didn't bat an eye when, I, when okay. I asked her. I mean, she knew I was a genetic counselor. Yeah. But um, I think a lot of doctors are actually happy um, to have patients who are proactive about that yeah. kind of thing. Great. Um, well, this is just so, like one example of having to be informed as a consumer mm -hmm. to know mm -hmm. what you even need to be asking. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so this is one of the things, right? Yeah. And maybe as we go on, we can come up with a checklist of yeah. when you're walking into your first pregnancy and the doctors are saying, do you have questions? You're like, actually, I do. <laughs> right, right. I do have a list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, because I, I think a lot of times, you know, your doctor asks you, you well, you know, you're not you're not thinking about getting pregnant until you are mm -hmm. most of the time. Obviously a lot of pregnancies are accidents, mm -hmm. but for the most part, you're not thinking about it until you are thinking about yeah. it. And so you may go to your annual visit one time and still be on birth control. And then, you know, six months later decide, okay, now's the right time. And the next time you go to your doctor, you may already be pregnant. And so, mm -hmm. um, they may not have had the chance. So I think some doctors are trying to be more proactive about asking like, are you planning pregnancy anytime mm -hmm. in the near future? And let's go ahead and do this. Mm -hmm. But I think for great. most, yeah. it's just so routine. This gets done every 12 week visit. Yeah. 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 And so, but I think if you were proactive about it and went in and, and asked for it, um, you might get that warning about insurance and you might say, okay, so, so then I would say, well, what are my options? Cause I know a lot of these um, companies want this testing to be accessible to mm -hmm. women. And so a lot of them do have, you know, if we don't go through your insurance, here's your max out of pocket cost. Okay. Um, and it's in the range of like $250 or something like okay. that to get this testing. Um, it's like going around insurance. Yeah. If you re if you genuinely do have an insurance company that will cover it ahead of time. Yeah. And when we're talking about it, the cost of pregnancy and the cost of bringing home a newborn baby, mm -hmm. that $250 seems like a drop in the bucket <laughs> yeah. compared to potentially mm -hmm. bringing a baby home that has a lot of needs. Yes. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. To bring home a healthy it. baby that's a drop in the bucket. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. But yes, especially yeah. to bring you home a, a high needs baby. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Yes. This has been such an eye opening mm -hmm. and, and just really, rich conversation. Really fascinating stuff. I think our listeners are probably, as we have, learned a lot. <laughs> so yes. thank you. Yeah. Um, last thing we want to end on is that here at Parenting Naked, we have a mission, and that is to create community for parents. Um, and to be a place where we sort of bear it all and tell the truth and the ups and downs of parenting. And so we'd like to end with what tips or advice would you offer to expectant or new parents? Um, I guess I would say that every baby is different. And so, um, and I have seen that so, so much with my two sons, mm -hmm. just how different they are um, from the, how different they were from day one. And so you're going to get so much advice about what you should be doing or how, um, you know, X, Y, or Z is going to solve that problem. Um, and listen to that advice and feel free to try what makes sense for you. Um, but if something doesn't feel right to you, disregard it. Mm -hmm. But also know that if it doesn't work the way it worked for your friend, it's not because you're doing something wrong. It's because you have a different baby. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Nice. Yeah. Oh, I like that. that. Excellent. Right. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yes, no two babies are the same. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yep. Thank we you appreciate guys. you coming in. Yeah.
Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.